Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Davida Herzl, the CEO and co-founder of Acclima. Acclima's mission is to build a more environmentally intelligent society. They do that by delivering environmental intelligence at unprecedented block-by-block resolution locally and globally. Their products and services provide government, industry, and communities transformative visibility into air pollution and climate emissions that accelerate action to protect public and planetary health. This is the first episode that we're putting pollution front and center. It's an important topic, and Acclima is one of the leaders in helping provide more visibility and more granular visibility into that pollution data so that we can better understand it, we can measure it, we can become more aware of the harm that it's doing, and we can make improvements to it. Davida Herzl, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you today. It's wonderful to have you. As I mentioned to you before we started recording, this is... I think my first episode that's really putting pollution front and center and and as a company that's been innovating in the area for so long and with such traction, it's such an honor to have you come on and educate me and listeners on this important topic. Thank you so much for, for having me. I'm excited to, to talk about it. Great. Well, maybe let's just take things from the top. So what is Acclima? Acclima's mission is to really enable a more environmentally intelligent society. And we're doing that through ubiquitous measurement of air quality and greenhouse gases and other environmental parameters. Because yesterday when we chatted, you mentioned that actually you'd never really had an episode focused on pollution. And, you know, when I started working on climate, one of the things that was sort of, you know, amazing to me was that we weren't making the connection that the same emissions that are changing our climate are creating a global public health emergency through exposure to air pollution. And, you know, we, we really follow the, the mantra that you can't manage what you don't measure. And so we've been working for the last decade to really introduce the capacity to measure air pollution and greenhouse gases at really granular block-by-block resolution and to make that data and that measurement ubiquitous to really drive localized emissions reductions as well as protection of public health that really adds up to global change. And so we've been we've been working on that platform for for a number of of years now and happy to dive into sort of any of the of the specifics. Well, I guess the first specific is just how did you end up coming to work on pollution for a living? You know, I am an entrepreneur by DNA. I grew up in a family of of entrepreneurs and became, you know, after I graduated from law school in 2004, became really impassioned about what I saw happening with, with climate and decided that I wanted to really focus my life's energy on building something really deeply impactful in the space. And since I grew up in an entrepreneurial family, you know, sort of the, the primary sort of vehicle for, for me was business. And so I set out to sort of figure out how do you build a business that really has deep and meaningful impact in the climate space it was a really, really hard 
thing to figure out in the first few years. And so I set out sort of on a, on a journey. It's appropriate that your podcast is called My Climate Journey because I don't think that there is, you know, sort of one single moment of inspiration, but really a journey and collection of experiences that ultimately led to focusing on, on building ACLMA. And it was in that sort of in that journey when I started to really work on understanding, you know, what was driving the climate crisis that we arrived at, you know, this idea of ubiquitous measurement as being a really important part of the solution. I mean, obviously, when it comes to climate, there's, you know, as you know, and as you've said many times, right, climate touches everything. And so it will require, acting on climate will require many, many different solutions and really deepen systemic change. And for me, as we develop the thesis for ACLMA, you know, one of the biggest and most frustrating dimensions of the challenge was that people were not at that time, and even until recently, sort of connecting climate change and planetary health with human health. That, you know, in 2004, 2005, 2006, after I graduated from law school, you know, the first movie that Al Gore put out had come out. And a lot of that, you know, it was it was a really foundational moment that created a lot of public awareness. But I was very frustrated that the focus was on, you know, what was happening to you know, the North Pole and and glaciers, which are deep and profound tragedies, but that we weren't making the connection that those same emissions that are causing deep change in natural ecosystems and at the global scale are also impacting us with every single breath we take. Because the same emissions that we're putting into the atmosphere are altering human health at a very profound scale. We now know that pollution is impacting every single organ in the human body at every phase of life. And, you know, people talk about respiratory disease and asthma, but pollution is connected to everything from diabetes to cognitive function, to Alzheimer's, to fetal development. We are what we breathe. And so I became just sort of obsessed with this gap in understanding that we weren't really thinking of climate change really fundamentally as a massive public health challenge and a slow moving public health pandemic. And that in order to really drive change, we needed data to, to really understand and connect the dots on that connection between, between human health and, and emissions. And then the other piece of, or the other major frustration that drove to the creation of, of ACMA and our focus on data and pollution data is that you know everything that we know about global climate change and the measurements that we take are taken at sort of locations around the world that help us understand what's happening globally, sort of at the background level, right? We know that we've you know, crossed far over the 400 ppm threshold of CO2. And so we have the data that we need to understand what's happening globally. And so now that we have a problem, right? Now that we understand the problem, we need to take action locally in our cities, in our communities, in our companies to reduce emissions, but we don't have the data infrastructure at all the measurement infrastructure at all to really solve for that, to understand where those hotspots are in our cities. And so 10 years ago, over 10 years ago, that's what we set out to solve for. And so coming in, I mean, I presume without any training in this area, I guess two questions. One, what was the first step in terms of going from like, yes, this is a problem worthy of my attention to, yes, let me build a company in this category. And then second, like what was 
what was the entry point, given that pollution is so broad and you could come at it from so many different angles? Where did you start? Yeah. So, you know, first it was really about, and, and I, and, you know, it took several years actually before sort of hiring anybody or sort of building out the, the, the business plan to really understand deeply what the problem was. And so that took me into a lot of really interesting places and conversations at NOAA and EPA to understand that, you know, fundamentally the technology to really measure pollution and greenhouse gases in a really distributed way didn't exist. And so I'm not a scientist by training. And so I looked to find experts in universities across the the country to partner with me in solving for this. And so we ended up partnering. I found a fantastic professor and researcher at the University of California who ended up working with us to really solve for this in the first few years. And so it was, you know, about supplementing, you know, my capabilities with deep scientific expertise uh, from experts in, in, in the university community. And so that's how we really started solving for this. It was by surrounding myself with experts with, with that deep domain expertise. And was the, was the initial observation that there was overall pollution data, but that it wasn't granular down to the local level and that that's what needed to be solved for? Right. And so, so that's, that's exactly what we sort of found when we started looking into, into the problem. So, you know, under the United States Clean Air Act, there is something referred to as reference measurement that requires a particular form of high-grade measurement to be able to determine compliance with the Clean Air Act, with the thresholds that are set in the Clean Air Act for criteria pollutants, so things like NOx, SOx, PM2.5. But that historical, that equipment that is historically used for measuring air pollution is very large, very difficult to deploy, very expensive. And so as a result, you have, you know, a limited set of stations in any urban environment. And there's entire countries in Africa, for example, in South America that have no data. And so because the traditional technology has been so expensive, it's been hard to make it much more ubiquitous. And so that's really what we what we set out to, to solve for. And it's the same story when it comes to greenhouse gas measurement. Very expensive, very high grade. I mean, that data is the gold standard, but very challenging to really deploy at at scale. And so having that more local granular level, what does that enable one to do with that data? So I guess, what does that enable one to do? And also, who is it that finds value from being able to do those things? I don't know why I always ask questions in twos. I, I'm trying to get out of that habit one at a time. <laughs> but no, I'm, just, I'm just like logging it and saying, okay, I have to, I have to not, not forget what he asked. So one of the things that that ACMA has done that I think is, you know, a really is a really important part of of who we are and what we do is that we invested very heavily in developing technology that really met the highest levels of data quality because we wanted to empower decision makers in government, the regulatory community, cities and municipal governments, but also big companies who are emitting or managing emissions or really sort of having to make decisions that can translate into millions of dollars. We wanted to make sure that the data that we were generating was trustworthy and that it really represented sort of the the highest levels of, of scientific rigor. And so that is something that, you know, we've really invested in heavily for the past decade. And we have, you know, an entire team of atmospheric scientists, former EPA employees, 
scientists from the national labs who ensure that the data that we're generating really meets the highest possible scientific you know, um, uh, standards for, for data quality. And the reason that we're so focused on that is that our data is, you know, fundamentally when we when we deploy, we've pioneered a methodology where we're leveraging both stationary sensors as well as our mobile sensing technology, where we deploy our technology, our sensing technology on roving fleets of vehicles. And so as those vehicles are driving through city streets, we're taking snapshots of the air and all of the different pollutants that we measure in real time as we're driving through those city streets. And then we stitch them together to create a map that enables us to understand pollution at the block by block level. And we published a really groundbreaking study in 2017 in partnership with a number of scientific partners at the University of Texas, the EDF, as well as, as Google, that showed that pollution is in fact hyperlocal. That although, you know, to date, the measurement approach for air pollution has sort of given us a regional scale understanding, pollution is in fact highly variable. So along a single city block, you can have on one end of the street, one end of the block, you can have one level of pollution. And at the other end of the block, you can have levels of pollution that are five to eight times higher. And that those levels of pollution, that those hotspots can be persistent for years. And so that's a really, really important finding, right? It means that we need to understand and measure emissions and pollution at this really localized level, at this granular level, to know two things, to know where it's coming from, and to know who it's affecting. And you know, it turns out that you know, where, where, where you live matters. It matters for your long-term health. And so you know, that granularity of data is really required to be able to take action at that local community scale, at the city scale, to really intervene in reducing emissions and, and protecting public health. And there's you know, a lot of examples for how our data has been used to really support that at, at scale. I think what I'm hearing, and this is just a test if I understand, is that because of your, I don't know if multimodal is the right word, you have different ways to collect the data, including increased stationary ones as well as some mobile ones. And so you can build this map that can give unparalleled visibility into much closer to real time, localized, granular, high caliber, scientifically pollution data. And and that that really matters from a population health standpoint, because if you have access to that localized data, then you know what areas are the, the offenders are that then need to be addressed. Is that right? Yeah. So it's, it's both about identifying where you have sort of hotspots and higher sort of levels of pollutants. And, and that enables you to see that same data enables you to see who is being impacted and where those impacts are happening, right? And so you really need that granularity to understand both sources of pollution and, and its localized impacts on, on people. So what is actionable with that data and by whom? So just to back up, the way that we deploy our, our technology is, again, through sort of these roving fleets of vehicles and combining that with stationary data. And we serve all of that data up in a software tool that we then work with sort of, you know, many different kinds of customers who subscribe to that platform to take action based on that data. And so one of the primary markets that we're serving today is the regulatory market and the government market, supporting regulators. So here in the Bay Area, for 
for example, in January, we announced that the local regulator here had adopted our technology platform to serve the entire Bay Area. So we're providing them block by block data across all of the most important greenhouse gases and criteria pollutants for the entire nine county region, all 5,000 square miles. And they're using that data to drive enforcement to inform new policy, to inform large-scale climate action, and to really support environmental justice communities, and in particular, sort of action that's focused on, on environmental justice communities. So, you know, there are communities across the country, across the state, where you see disproportionate impacts of pollution, primarily sort of communities of color that are really seeing you know, the highest impacts of, of pollution levels. And so the, our data is really supporting action to reduce those local emissions, to create plans that really drive emissions reductions. And it can be everything from a really localized electrification of transport to investment in vegetation. In Los Angeles, for example, our data helped to support investment infiltration in schools who were seeing, you know, very high levels of black carbon, you know, along, you know, certain schools that were located along major traffic corridors. So really informs a whole set of, of actions at the regulatory level. But then there's there's also a number of other markets that that we're serving, but very focused right now on supporting governments and regulators and in, in, in taking action with this with this kind of, of data. And from a coverage standpoint, do you sell the deal and then go and get the coverage or do you have the coverage and then you go and sell into those markets or do you just have coverage everywhere? In terms of coverage, while we're primarily focused right now on on serving up, you know, serving the, the government market, we are also providing access to the information to the public for free. So everywhere that we go map, we provide free public access to sort of an aggregated layer of, of data. And we are we do both. So sometimes, you know, we'll have an anchor customer in a major market, like here in, in the Bay Area, and then we work with other, you know, customers in the region to, to provide provide access to, to these sort of analytic premium software tools. But, you know, but sometimes we're out mapping in, in communities and markets where we don't have an established, you know, customer, but are working closely with environmental justice advocates and communities who want access to, to that information to drive local action. Today, we have very dense deployments across the state of California, and we're entering a number of other major markets later this year. And then we're distributed globally through our partnership with Google. Street View, where we're riding along Street View vehicles that are being deployed in, in cities around the world. And then we also aggregate and ingest data from, from all over the planet and, and serve it up in, in our platform. And so is 100% of your customer base the regulators today? No, that's just where we're very focused. But there are a number of other customer segments that we are working with, including you know, major emitters who want to take action to reduce their emissions and need visibility into those emissions in order to know where to focus their operational budgets. For example, we have the capacity to see gas leaks in natural gas infrastructure at that block-by-block -block resolution, and that data is very important for utilities. We're also heavily engaged with major players in the health community who are using our data to drive a deeper understanding of how air pollution and human health are connected and how that can actually improve healthcare. 
just to point to this, there was a major publication that was published by Kaiser Permanente that showed that our hyperlocal black carbon data can support prediction or identification of higher risk for cardiovascular disease down at that block by block level. And the truth is that, you know, this data and all of the different pollutants that we are collecting are really important to a lot of different verticals. And so we're really excited about, you know, the opportunities for growth and real estate and insurance, but initially very, very focused today on really serving our government customers as a sort of our major priority at this time, but a lot of other opportunity that we're exploring. How many types of pollution data do you currently track? So we measure all of the criteria pollutants except lead. So that includes, you know, things like carbon monoxide, PM 2.5, NOx, and then we're also measuring major GHGs except for the fluorocarbons, so methane, CO2. And then we're also measuring a number of pollutants that aren't yet regulated, but that are really important for human health. So things like black carbon which are really important for for human health and to understand the impact of like diesel and transport. And then we're measuring and continually adding a lot of other parameters to the platform. So continuing to grow the capacity of the platform, we have a very ambitious roadmap for all of the things that we will be measuring. But even, you know, even our block by block temperature data, for example, is really important for understanding things like heat island effect. So the data has very broad reaching applications across a whole set of verticals in both government and and enterprise and, and sort of broad scale industry. And what would you say is a special sauce that Acclima brings that didn't exist before Acclima came along? You know, there's a lot of different dimensions to to what we do that are required really to be successful in delivering quality data and and really a high quality experience of of that data. But, you know, today, for example, you know, being able to have that coverage block by block across an entire city, across an entire metropolitan region is really unique. It's taken years of development and validation to really be at the place where we have sort of the credibility and the scientific credibility around that data. And so I think that the the scale of coverage and the scale and the resolution of the data is really unique in the space. And the other, you know, really unique feature of our platform is the multi-pollutant approach. So, you know, that means that we're measuring all of these pollutants all at the same time, right? So it's not just like, you know, PM 2.5 or carbon monoxide, it's everything all at once. And so what that enables us to do is to really conduct very deep analysis on that data to sort of find fingerprints in the data. So for example, you know, when we see methane increasing at the same time that ethane is increasing, along with a number of other signals, we know that that's likely a natural gas leak. When we see black carbon increasing along with NO2, we know that that's like a fingerprint for diesel. And so this multi-pollutant approach enables us to really fingerprint the data, fingerprint, you know, different sort of potential sources that then tell us a lot more about, you know, what's actually happening in that underlying system that is leading to those higher pollution levels. So that's, that's a very unique approach. And then, you know, I think, I think the other really unique element of of, of our work is just the degree of, of scientific rigor that is really behind the, the platform and the technology. And that's entirely based on sort of the incredible 
expertise that we have on our team and, you know, having a completely integrated stack. So, you know, we manufacture and design and, and develop the sensor technology, but also all of the data infrastructure and analytical tools, as well as the front end tools. And so like just the completely integrated nature of the platform that is built with very deep scientific expertise embedded across all elements of that platform is a really unique set of capabilities that we bring together to really deliver really um, you know unprecedented scale at the data at an unprecedented scale and data that that we hope can really drive deep and meaningful action to reduce emissions is it priced just like an annual subscription? Yeah, it's an annual subscription. And so as a customer, you never have to touch hardware. You never have to calibrate sensors. You never have to sort of, you know, worry about the operations of what it takes to, to actually do these kinds of measurements, right? Sensors drift. There's a lot of challenges with maintaining data quality of sensors over time and over long periods of time, over years. We do all of that. For our customers and our customers simply have to subscribe and suddenly they have you know very granular visibility and the analytical tools to really understand all of these different pollutants and sources at this very granular scale without ever having to really lift a finger and that's that's a that's a complete paradigm shift in in the space our data is you know refreshing we have refreshing baseline maps that show you how pollution and emissions are changing over time and so that enables you to, to really enter into a continuous improvement cycle and really have a data-driven approach to emissions reductions efforts that actually enable you to see, are you making a measurable difference over time? And so then sort of in, you know, today, when it comes to measuring air pollution in cities, you know, you have sort of once in the city of San Francisco, for example, there's one station. And so that doesn't let you really see if at the very local level, at the block by block level, you really are having sort of the, the localized impacts that protect public health at that really local level. If you're a utility and you are taking action to you know address a leak, you need data and refreshing data to understand if if you're really sort of you know having an impact. And I'm curious just about incentives because I mean obviously pollution is a causes a bunch of public health issues, but what is the motivation of a regulator? Is it a financial incentive that they can assess more fees? And I guess similarly, when it comes to the utility cleaning up the leak, I've heard anecdotally when it comes to things like methane leaks, for example, that unless they're regulated, they aren't just going to want to clean up their act because it ends up costing more for them to clean up their act than it than it does to just let it leak. So I guess, what are you finding in terms of motivation today? And do you think that the motivation is sufficient or, or do we need to change things to, to get enough people to care to really make a dent in our pollution problem in a sustained way? So I can, I can provide the example of our experience here in, in California. So, you know, when it comes to the regulatory community, to cities and counties, there's really been a transformative movement that's been emerging in the environmental justice community, where now there is really sort of a huge body of knowledge and science that is showing that certain environmental justice communities, that you know, communities of color, women and children are disproportionately impacted by higher levels of pollution. And that the environmental justice community has really been an incredible sort of proponent of action from governments. And so here in California, there's a number of really leading advocates who took action to work with the state of California to implement a new law that requires 
monitoring in order to target dollars from the state in reducing emissions in those communities where you have some of these very sort of disproportionate impacts. And so you're seeing sort of regulatory frameworks now. There's a very similar framework in New York and in other other jurisdictions across the, the country now that are emerging that are actually requiring protection of public health at the local level and at the level that really enables you know action in, in these communities where you've seen you know decades of really detrimental impacts from from pollution you know in west oakland you have some of the highest rates of asthma here for example in in the county and so because you know there's a regulatory framework there this is something that is now mandated and that we're seeing more more and more of and so you know when you have a limited set of tax dollars or a limited set of of government dollars to spend on local interventions, data and measurement really helps you target those interventions in a very in a very focused way. And so, you know, you can sort of accelerate action to reduce emissions when you have that hyperlocal data and to protect public health where, you know, you really that's really difficult to do in the absence of 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 measurement. And whether it's a, a you know, a utility or other sort of major emitters, you know, they are increasingly because of risk and financial risk associated with unmanaged emissions, you know, whether it's impacts from from a leak to, you know, their own, if they're, I mean, every time you have a leak, you are losing money to really license to operate, right? There's a lot of players that are really located in, in communities where you have sort of these historically impacted communities. And so they really, you know, we are seeing a lot of interest in, in taking action to, to really increase license to operate and ensure that the relationship with those communities is a healthy one. And so we actually, you know, even in the absence of regulation or legislation have seen a lot of interest in the platform to really serve public health, both at the government and government as well as in, in industry. And I think, you know, the regulatory framework here in California is a really prime example of how enabling legislation can be to really drive, you know, action this way. And how have we been doing overall? What are the trends? Well, you know, it's been really interesting the past couple of weeks during the shelter in place here in the in the Bay Area. We have been, you know, as I shared, we have a network deployed across the entire region and we've been doing very deep analysis on that data. And over the past two weeks, you know, one of the side effects of shelter in place has been that there's less cars on the road, less activity, and CO2 levels during that time frame have reduced by up to 40%. PM 2.5, which is one of the most harmful pollutants to public health, is down by, by almost half during the weekdays. And so, you know, we're already seeing just in a couple of weeks from reduced activity, not just here in the Bay, but around the world, that we have, you know, a tremendous amount of agency and impact on the air we breathe. It's just sort of an, an unprecedented natural experiment where we get to see you know, what happens when when we take very deep action to reduce emissions? And and I think it, it sort of serves potentially as sort of, you know, inspiration for what's possible, right? When we when we come out of this this situation that's really sweeping sweeping the country and, and the world, how do we find a silver lining in this pandemic to inspire action to protect public health in a more sustained and, and ongoing way? And what about the several years before that? So you mean in terms of in terms of our overall overall pollution? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Is pollution getting. It seems like pollution's been getting worse, but I just don't. I actually don't know the data. Yeah. So the the changes are 
I would say that it's, you know, there's very localized impacts, but I would say that, you know, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, air pollution was deemed, the WHO called air pollution sort of a, a global health epidemic, one of the top global health epidemics facing the planet and society, with 91% of the world's population now breathing unhealthy air. And so that's a lot of people that are really sort of seeing, you know, the, the detrimental impacts of increasing levels of pollution. And while, you know, there are parts of the country and here in the United States where, you know, over over time, we really have seen, you know, since the Clean Air Act, for example, in Los Angeles, you look, you go back and you look at Los Angeles before the Clean Air Act and after you have, you know, much cleaner skies, but we still have a long way to go because we now know that even at low levels of exposure, pollution can have really detrimental impacts on on human health. But, you know, you look at other places around the world, and especially fast-growing economies like India, you've seen just an incredible increase in pollution levels, you know, over the last 10, 15 years. You know, New Delhi, Delhi was was shut down for weeks on end because because of, you know, levels of pollution that literally made it impossible to breathe. And so while you have improvements in some parts of the world, there's parts of the world where, you know, you're seeing levels of pollution that make it almost, you know, hard to imagine how, how you get through the day, just sort of, you know, living in, and with a mask is kind of like the, the status quo, because those levels of pollution are just so significant. And it causes, I mean, so many issues. Isn't it one of, isn't it one of the leading causes of death overall? Yes. Yeah, so 7 million people die every single year from exposure to air pollution. But more profoundly, air pollution is is really associated with a wide span of human health impacts. And so if you do the math, you're talking about trillions of dollars in terms of in terms of those health impacts. It is now connected with diabetes, it's connected with heart disease, connected to fetal development, connected to dementia and Alzheimer's. We are what we breathe, right? These 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 particles that we put into the air are now known to cross the blood brain brain barrier and actually impact cognition. We did a lot of really groundbreaking work in the first chapter of the of the company on indoor sensing and there was, you know, really fascinating research that was coming out at the time that was showing that, you know, once you get to certain thresholds of CO2 that are very common indoors, you actually cut cognition by up to 50%. And so we literally sort of lose the ability to to, to solve, to problem solve as you start to experience even short-term exposure to bad air quality. When I talk about air pollution and its impacts on people, I'm often reminded of that, I don't know if you've heard the, the parable by David Foster Wallace and the, about the fish, right, where there's this sort of older fish swimming through through the ocean and he runs into two younger fish and he says, you know, how's the water today? Right. And the the, the fish look at each other and, and they ask, you know, what what's water? Right. It's it's as if we have forgotten that we're a breathing species. And when you look at at the world from ten thousand feet, you know, sort of when you look at, at the world from space in your mind's eye, you know, you realize that the layer of air that supports life that makes this planet habitable is extremely thin. If the earth were an apple, the layer of skin on that apple would be breathable air. We're talking about, you know, a very limited and precious resource 
that we depend on. And the more that we put into into it, the more we pollute that incredible resource, you know, we, we breathe all of that in and it impacts us at a very profound level that I think, you know, is really, for me, the basis for for the argument for broad and sweeping climate action, right? When you look at the current scenario, what's playing, unfolding right now in the, in the world economy, it's showing us that public health is the foundation of our GDP, right? You need a healthy population to really drive our, our global economy. And so I think what we need to solve for as a society is how do you create flourishing economies that also sustain human health. And so that that's a really exciting and, and big challenge for, I think, all of your, your listeners and for all of us to take on. I mean, given given the dire stats that you were just quoting in terms of the, the high percentages of people that are that are breathing unbreathable air wherever they live around the world, if you could kind of step outside of yourself and outside of Acclima and you just had a magic wand and could change one thing to help address the pollution problem, what would it be? And what would you do? So I think if there was a broad and public sort of just awareness of this issue, if we could empower the public with broad awareness of what's happening and its impacts and the impacts of pollution, I think you would see a lot of, you know, mobilization. And so I think that there's a, uh, you know, I'm really as challenging as the, the the current COVID situation is, I'm inspired by the way that people are coming together to take action. And so, you know, I think that there's a lot of value in education of the public around how significant the challenge of air pollution is and what its impacts are on their health, on their families, on their kids, and on their on their communities. And when I think about sort of, you know, if I were to, to sort of wave a, a magic wand, and, and maybe it's, you know, and it is one of the reasons that we started ACLMA is that there's a really deeply rooted problem in the system. Climate change isn't so much, and pollution isn't so much sort of a crisis of about sort of the source of energy that we've, that we've chosen to, to prioritize. It's really an economic problem, right? We've we've externalized all of these impacts and we haven't priced them in to how we think about risk into markets and how we plan for the future and so i think that you know and and when i think about sort of the long term potential of of our data is the way that it can actually turn what are today externalities and really internalize them into really large scale decision making at the level of financial markets as we all start to understand that you know that really this is this is one of the greatest classes of risk to our global economy if we don't take action so you know there's a lot of different mechanisms for incorporating those externalities into how we price things and so i would i would say that that would be a really really important part of of the systemic solution. And back to your awareness question, I mean, you, you've mentioned the importance of awareness. Do you think it's that the public lacks awareness or do they somehow just lack action, making that awareness actionable? Like, is it like, I know that eating junk food is bad for me, but still every night at around eight o'clock, I just kind of go go to the junk cabin and grab whatever processed food I can find. I know it's not good for me, but I do it anyways. Do people not know that pollution is causing all this damage or or is it just not tangible enough for them to 
either take action themselves or, or be willing to put up with the sacrifices when it comes to things like their their pocketbook for increased taxes or or less accessibility of of transportation options that they love or things like that. Sure. So the reason I talk about sort of public awareness is, you know, I think the greatest the, the big challenge when it comes to pollution is that it requires there's things that we can do as individuals and citizens to protect ourselves. But in order to really unlock systemic change, you know, shift, large scale shift to electrification, market driven solutions that enable governments to really, you know, things like cap and trade, properly structured cap and trade, you know, it requires deep and systemic change from governments and companies. And so public awareness is more about entering into sort of a new demanding a different form of, of action and accountability from both companies and governments. But really the kind of change that we need needs to be large and, and broad. And one of the reasons that we've sort of an ACLMA taken the approach that we that we have is that we think that empowering local governments, local communities, companies to take action sort of at the local scale, if we can really unlock that and do it at scale, then you can kind of sort of, you know, aggregate a lot of small changes that are ta- that are that are being made by these large players and really, you know, aggregate that in such a way that it adds up to deep and meaningful change. But the role of the public, you know, is really about engaging governments and companies in, in broader and more ambitious action. And I think, you know, companies and 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 governments are increasingly seeing this as you know, really getting ahead of on the government side, it's about protection of public health at a very you know large scale. And on on the sort of the 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 enterprise side, it's about managing and mitigating the risk that unmanaged emissions present. But you really need all sectors involved. Citizens alone are part of the equation, but but it's but it's not all that's required. We we need everybody at the table. And when you talk about driving action, what are the top one or or handful of things that can actually be done that would take the biggest bite out of reducing our overall pollution? I think that there is a huge opportunity. I mean, there's been just so much attention on this, but I think even, you know, our 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 analysis from the last couple of weeks is you know, further shedding light on this, but it is, you know, transformation of transportation and the fuels that we use in driving transport and how we sort of, you know, get from one place to to another. Large and broad scale sort of electrification can have really deep and, and tremendous impacts. I think also investing in natural infrastructure, the data shows trees and vegetation have a really significant role to play in reducing the impacts of emissions. It's both about removing and reduction, but then it's also about about capturing. And natural infrastructure, trees and vegetation, are you know technology that's been developed over billions of years that plays a really important role in, in all of this. So if you had $100 billion and you could put it towards anything to solve pollution, where would you put it? Well, what I would say is that to do what we need to do, it's going to require more than $100 billion. I think as human beings, we sometimes want to identify the quick and easy solution, the one silver bullet that's going to solve everything. And I think what climate change challenges us to, to do is to think about ourselves and our relationship with the planet in a really different way we have to ask ourselves 
some really deep and fundamental questions about the way we operate as a society. And so I think that it, like I said, it takes, it takes all of us. There isn't a single silver bullet. We have so many of the technologies already, and we need to deploy them across many different facets of, of society. It is increasing the distribution of solar, it's increasing forestation, it's reforestation, it's carbon localized carbon capture. It is even sort of, you know, introducing new approaches, data-driven approaches to urban planning, and it touches everything. It's not just, you know, it's pollution, it's it's, you know, the pollution that's entering our our water systems, it's our relationship with with other species. And so, you know, I I wish I I could answer the question with with one silver bullet. But I think that really, and this is why climate change is just such a such an incredible opportunity for us as a species, is that it really requires us to recognize how interconnected we are and that everything we do, one, that we all have a role to play. And secondly, that everything we do has an impact. And so in, in some ways it is complex. There is no single, single answer, but there's a lot of low sort of easy solutions. I mean, you know, like, like I said, there's, there's a lot of things that we can do in the short term. And then there's some really difficult things that we have to think about over, over the long term. But I think there's entire sectors of our economy that are affected, but that also represents huge opportunities for value creation, right? Like I said, transformation of transport into really, you know, broad and sweeping electrification is, I think, a really important part of part of what we need to do. And last question is just so if you think back to how you were feeling coming out of law school, imagine the people that are coming out of law school today or who just got laid off from their job because of COVID-19 and and are determined to work on climate change as the long term problem that makes sense for them or the hedge fund, you know, billionaire that made money and can't look at themselves in the mirror anymore and want to, you know, focus on climate to try to give back and try to put us humans on a better course. What advice do you have for people that are trying to figure out, given the formidable nature of this challenge, where they should anchor and how they should help? That's a great question. I, I look back at my, my own experience and also the experience of other incredible entrepreneurs that I've met who are, you know, tackling the, the climate challenge. And I think it goes back to what I said, right, which is that there is no single silver bullet, that it actually requires all of us and a lot of different kinds of expertise contributing to solutions. And so I think looking at yourself, looking at, you know, everything you've you've learned and expertise that you've acquired over your particular journey and identifying ways that that experience can add unique value. I think is how we all need to be thinking about it because it does touch every sector of society. And so, you know, I would ask that that hedge fund manager, for example, how do we think about risk metrics, right? That are that 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 actually enable us to integrate these impacts into how we think about, you know, assets on the public markets. If you are a lawyer, how do you think about new legal frameworks for ensuring sort of the, the, the protection of, of our natural sort of, you know, our, our waterways, right? There's just so much that needs to be done. And I guess I, I would answer your question about it, you know, if there was one thing that I could do, it would be to have the capacity to, to challenge all of us to really take this on as the moonshot of, of our time right? We talk about earth shots at Aklama, right? This is our generation's moonshot. And it requires so many different kinds of expertise to be able to tackle it. And so for me, 
And I think what you're doing that is so powerful, but what was, you know, really important for me as I was, as I was starting my journey in the space was just surrounding myself with other experts, learning as much as I could about the problem to figure out what unique value, you know, I could bring to the challenge. And, you know, and I, and I'll, and I'll say, I mean, I've been on this journey with ACOMA for over a decade now and solving these challenges, it's really, really hard. This is like the single most wicked problem (laughs) that you could be, you know, you could be tackling and it requires, you know, in our instance, you know, for Acoma, in our case, it required, you know, engineering and science and data science and, you know, all just an insane amount of capabilities and challenges to be solved in order to, to do this well. And so, you know, I think what is so powerful about climate is that it really enables you to build a, if it's what you care about, really enables you to sort of, you know, wake up at five in the morning and do whatever it takes to, to sort of realize your vision for what's possible and put in, put in the, the long hours and the, the effort to really build something that can, that can make a difference. You know, I really couldn't see something more, more valuable to, to be allocating our time to. Anything I didn't ask you or any parting words for listeners beyond what you just said? This conversation has certainly gotten me thinking about a lot, you know, and about the way that I think we can all make a difference. And it it's everything from starting a business or starting a nonprofit to sort of contributing your skills and resources to companies and entrepreneurs that need those resources if you're an investor or if you're an engineer or a scientist finding opportunities to join companies and initiatives that are really driving change in, in the climate sphere. And I would just say that, you know, it really, for me, has been just an incredibly rewarding experience because the, you know, the challenge tends to attract incredibly committed and brilliant people. We wouldn't be here without our team at Acoma. We are just, you know, we have incredible people on the team who, you know, frankly sort of humble me every day with their commitment and their passion for solving these really, you know, deep and challenging problems. And so I would say that, you know, it's not just rewarding because you're working on something that's so important, but because you're surrounded by people that just care so deeply. It's been a really humbling experience to have that at Acoma and, and be surrounded by by such an incredible folks. So, you know, I'm really excited by the work that you're doing to really sort of expand the conversation and invite others into this journey to tackle, you know, one of the most significant challenges of, of our time. Well, Thank you so much for dedicating so much time now to such an important problem and for taking the time out of your busy day running a company and dealing with a global pandemic and I'm sure a number of other things to educate me and to educate listeners on both Acoma and on this important problem of of pollution. And I wish you every success. Thank you so much. And thank you to you and, and your listeners, Jason. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And... Before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.